No. That is my dog, Yuka, staring at me as I eat dinner, begging for food scraps. It's kind of funny to think that this is reminiscent of how the human-canine relationship began. Granted, it was not at a kitchen table and definitely not with an animal that looked anything like Yuka, who is a Boston Terrier Frenchie mix. It all got started with wolves. Although it's still debated, the most popular theory behind the domestication of wolves is referred to as the commensal scavenger hypothesis, which is that wolves more or less domesticated themselves by wandering around ancient hunter-gatherer settlements in search of food scraps. In over thousands of years, increasingly docile, friendly behaviors were selected for, giving rise to a genetically and physically distinct canine, the dog. A genetic study a couple of years back proposed that dogs were already living among humans over 23,000 years ago. But the earliest remains of people and dogs found together date back to the Paleolithic era, just over 14,000 years ago. In 1914, workers uncovered a grave in what's now a suburb of Bonn, Germany. In it, they found the remains of a dog, a man, and woman, along with several objects made from antler, bone, and teeth. And when the findings were re-evaluated over a century later, researchers not only discovered the remains of an additional dog, they were able to determine that one of the dogs was still a puppy, and lesions in its mouth and changes in tooth enamel suggested that it died of distemper, which is a highly contagious virus, and that it suffered through two or three periods of serious illness before dying. And to have survived that long, it almost certainly needed help from humans. So we've been taking care of dogs for a while, but today's episode is about how they also take care of us. Welcome to Tiny Matters. I'm Sam Jones, and I'm joined by my co-host, Deboki Chakravarti. I have two dogs, Yuka, who you heard earlier, and Zeki. And I do not have a dog. I have a very adorable cat named Bastion who would disown me if I did get a dog. <laughs> but I do really like the idea of dogs. I love playing with other people's dogs, and maybe one day I will have one. You've probably heard somewhere that dogs are good for us, not just because they get us to go outdoors and have more fun, but because they reduce our stress, lower our blood pressure, alert us to danger and disease, and make us less likely to develop allergies. But is there really science backing up those statements? That's where our guests come in. In today's episode, Deboki and I spoke with Jen Goldbeck and Stacey Colino, the authors of the new book, The Purest Bond, Understanding the Human-Canine Connection, which is a feel-good exploration of the profound bond between humans and dogs. Jen Golbeck is a professor at the University of Maryland and a computer scientist by training. She's also the creator of the Golden Ratio 4, which is a very popular social media account featuring Jen's rescue golden retrievers. Stacy Colino is an award-winning health and science writer and lifelong dog lover. Right now, she and her family have a rescue named Sadie. In The Purest Bond, they cover a huge range of topics, including understanding your dog's behaviors and the ins and outs of dog ownership, from getting a puppy to the later years caring for an aging dog. 
Today, we're going to dig into some of the fascinating science research in the book so that if someone says, but do dogs actually reduce our stress? You can say yes, and here's how we know. But first, we wanted to know what prompted Jen and Stacy to take on such a big project. What about dogs draws you to them so much that you would write a whole book? Um, <laughs> you know, there's probably a massive list, but what would you say some of your main motivations were for writing The Purest Bond? You know, I started talking to my book agent about this really early in COVID lockdown when a lot of people were adopting dogs and bringing them home. And we were talking about like how dogs have all these great effects. And that's something I've always been interested in, even though it isn't my area of study. When these studies would come out that were like, oh, if you have a dog, if you have a heart attack, you actually live much longer than people who don't have dogs, even if you control for walking. I was always like totally fascinated by those studies. And so the timing seemed like, this might be a good time to write a joyful book because there are not that many of those these days. There's a lot. We're talking about important things that are bad, but we also need these breaks to like talk about things that are great. So I wrote a couple sample chapters and gave them to my agent and they were like, hey, you know, this is great. Have you thought about working with a professional writer to help you? And I was like, (laughs) oh, my feelings are a little bit hurt, but also that's a great idea and we'll probably make things much better. And that's how I met Stacy, who came on and we ended up, you know, being 50-50 partners writing the book. Well, it was funny. I don't even know if Jen knows this story, but my agent came to me and said, well, this colleague here has a project that we both think you would be great for, but you're busy writing this other book. So your plate is probably full. And I've been on the fence about whether to even tell you about it. And I said, well, tell me, what is it? And she mentioned, I was like, are you kidding me? This is totally in my wheelhouse. And this is right up my alley. I am a total dog lover. And it was really great timing for me because a month earlier, my beloved dog, Inky, had died. And it was very, very sudden. And he was 13 and a half. And I was just so devastated by this. And the whole family was. We made it one month without a dog because we really don't know how to live without a dog. And then we discovered Sadie. She had been put up for adoption. She was one of those dogs who was a little bit older. Everybody wanted a puppy at this point in the pandemic. And she was five at the time. And we went to this horse farm in Virginia and met her and a whole bunch of other rescue dogs. And she jumped in my car and didn't want to get out. Like she chose us. And so it was just, it seemed like this was a great opportunity to celebrate this bond that's so magical and so deep. And that people were experiencing on a deeper level during the pandemic because they were spending more time with their dogs but also new people were discovering for the first time as they adopted dogs or bought them for the first time. The first thing Sam and I chatted with Jen and Stacy about was the microbiome. If you're a longtime listener, you may remember we covered the microbiome a while back in episode 23. We all carry microbes on us and inside us. The microbiome has been getting a lot of attention. Dogs have microbiomes too. And anybody you share a home with has microbes in common with you because you share some of the same stuff, you touch each other, you hug each other, and so on. And with dogs, they have bacteria and other microbes on their fur and in their saliva, and not to get too, you know, nitty-gritty and nasty about it, but that enters our bodies and vice versa. So these studies have found that when humans live with dogs and they have a close relationship, they have a lot of microbes in common. 
So it changes kind of the composition and the diversity of the bacteria and other microbes inside our gut microbiome, but also our skin microbiome. People don't realize we have multiple microbiomes. Your microbiome is made up of a huge number of species of microbes, both ones that are good and bad. A study in December of last year done with 54 dog owners over the age of 65 showed that dog ownership doesn't necessarily increase the diversity of microbes in a person's gut, but it does seem to increase the number of those beneficial microorganisms and suppress the number of harmful bacteria. Growing up with a dog has also been implicated in allergies. Some studies have found that when kids are exposed to dogs from a young age, it actually decreases their risk of developing allergies, not only to dogs, but to other things as they grow up, which is mm. pretty amazing. In March of this year, in an analysis of over 65,000 infants in Japan, researchers found that children exposed to pet cats or indoor dogs while still in the womb or during early infancy tended to have fewer food allergies compared to other children. Specifically, kids exposed to indoor dogs were significantly less likely to experience egg, milk, and nut allergies. And kids exposed to cats were significantly less likely to have egg, wheat, and soybean allergies. I also want to add that they found that children exposed to hamsters, which to be fair was less than 1% of the total group, although that is still thousands of kids, had significantly greater incidence of nut allergies. That's super weird. I know. I just, I felt like I had to mention it. Okay, <laughs> moving on. The next thing we wanted to talk with Jen and Stacy about was stress. How do we know that dogs can reduce our stress and blood pressure? The research on the impact of dogs and blood pressure, especially in stressful situations, is so interesting. There's a ton of different studies on this where, you know, sometimes they'll have a group just sitting in a room by themselves. Sometimes we're looking at groups who are going into like therapy for PTSD or, or even electroshock therapy for major depression that's resistant to treatment. They will have people do math tests or like little math problems in their head, which is actually a really good way to get people to feel stress or put them in physically stressful situations. All these things that are designed to essentially make you feel stressed out and have it physically manifest. So your blood pressure might go up, your heart rate, your breathing. And all these studies then introduce things to try to modulate that. So maybe it's your partner being present or a stranger or a dog. And consistently what these results show on all these studies is that if you pet a dog, your levels of stress are going to go down. And often that your performance, if you're looking at something like a math test, will go up. But you just feel better. And we can like describe that as a sense of well-being that we feel better. But also you'll see your blood pressure comes down, your heart rate comes down. If we get to measuring hormones that reveal stress, those levels also go down and it's remarkably fast. So it can be less than 10 minutes of petting a dog and not even your own dog, just any dog. And you're likely to feel better. And it has really profound implications. I mean, if you're looking at situations where you really need people to relax, if they're testifying in court about something traumatic, if they're trying to perform on a test, if they're in therapy and you need them to kind of relax so they can connect with what they're doing, the presence of a dog there actually can be really helpful. Is it enough for the dog to be in the room with you? Or is it also like something about the petting motion and the interaction with the dog that's soothing for people? That's a great question. Literally just having a dog in the room 
can help. You don't even need to interact with them. I just wanted to add on to what you're both getting at here, which is that there are studies, most of which came from Japan, that have looked at the effects of looking into your dog's eyes for a certain amount of time and how that affects your hormones. And they found that when people looked into their dog's eyes for five to 10 minutes, both creatures experienced a surge of oxytocin, which is a feel-good hormone. It's often called the bonding hormone, the love hormone, the cuddle hormone, and they're not touching. They're just looking into each other's eyes. That's how profound this connection is. That's super interesting because that was the other thing I was wondering about, Jen, while you were explaining the research is how much of it is mutual. Like, I would love the idea that when I'm with the dog, I'm getting all of these benefits. Is the dog getting any benefit from me? Am I doing something for the dog? This is one of my favorite kind of meta results, I think, that that came out of doing this book. We can talk about how we feel when we interact with the dog, but I think a question that comes up especially when you're a dog person talking to non-dog people, is like, does your dog actually love you back? And I mean, of course my dog loves me back. Uh, But like, do they really, or are we just making that up? And I think the science is quite clear that they do. So I think this example that Stacey talked about with the oxytocin is one of those things. The dogs get this same feel-good hormonal response to interacting with us. But my favorite result from the book is based in fMRIs. Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging, or fMRI, is a non-invasive imaging technology that measures brain activity by detecting changes in blood flow to different regions throughout the brain. If we step back in psychology, there's this concept called attachment bonds, which is like the bonds often form between mothers and infants. They're really important. They affect all of our relationships for our whole life. And we know that you can put babies in an fMRI so you can see like the parts of the brain that are lighting up and they can hear their mother's voice or see a picture of their mom and certain parts of their brain light up. And those are the parts that are connected to attachment bonds. So these are the closest, most loving relationships that you have. They're places that you go to feel safe, to kind of come home to. So we know the part of the brain that's connected to attachment bonds. And they've done similar studies in dogs where they have trained these dogs to lay perfectly still in an fMRI. And then they will let them hear the voice of their owner or smell their owner. And the same part of the dog's brain lights up that lights up in a baby when they see their mom. And so what that says is that our dogs on a biological level seem to be showing evidence that they also form those bonds back with us, which of course like anybody who has a dog knows that that's true, right? And I think these all kind of come together to be like, yeah, the dog is getting something out of this relationship. And it's not just that we take care of them and we feed them, but they are emotionally connected to us in these really profound, deep ways like we see between the closest human relationships. We also really wanted to ask Jen and Stacy about medical alert dogs. You might remember that in episode 28, we did a deep dive on detection dogs and how the dog olfactory system, their smell center, works. But we mainly focused on dogs who alert us to the presence of explosives. Medical alert dogs are focused on alerting their owner to whatever it is their owner needs to know about. Maybe the owner has a severe airborne allergy to nuts. Their medical alert dog would be trained to detect trace levels of odor from, say, peanuts. Or if a person is diabetic, they might have an alert dog trained to pick up on odor molecules specific to low levels of blood sugar, which is incredible. So these dogs are just so keenly aware of what we smell like that they can pick up on chemical changes in our sweat or breath or even urine. 
an interesting study that was done in Milan at a research center there, they actually took bomb detection German shepherds and trained them to try to recognize prostate cancer in urine samples. And so they had all these jars and some were cancerous and some weren't. But there were two of these German shepherds. One of them was right 100% of the time. And the other was right 98.6% of the time out of 362 samples. So it's not like, oh, you know, there were 10 samples and they kind of got lucky, right? There are hundreds and hundreds of samples. And these dogs were basically perfect at detecting cancer. And even without extensive training, many dogs will still alert to a problem with their owner. I loved this story that Jen told us about a dog named Chomp, who was so tuned into changes in his owner's breathing that it saved the owner's life. When we were writing the book, I was having a dock put in at my house. We lived down near Key West. And the guy who's putting the dock in was like a big dog lover. And I'd always bring my dogs out to say hi to him when he'd check in on it. And he told me this story about Chomp that's now in the book where he was basically just about to have a heart attack and woke up to his dog doing what he called doggy CPR, like bouncing on his chest, waking him up in the middle of the night. He had a really hard time getting up. The dog like would not leave him alone. And he took himself to the doctor in the morning and they actually airlifted him out of Key West up to Miami to have surgery to fix this blockage in a major artery that would have killed him if they hadn't fixed it. And he's like, the only reason I did that was because Chomp knew that something was wrong. And it's this beautiful story. You know, he's here, you know, a decade later Chomp is no longer with us, but John, the guy in the book is. And, you know, it shows the dogs really know intimately what's going on with us. So I guess as the resident non-dog owner, if I was to get a dog or anyone else, if they were about to get a dog for the first time, is there a piece of advice you would give me or someone else about the experience? I mean, it's great, but it can be chaotic. And one thing that we kind of open up the book with is talking about when you get a new dog, whether it's a puppy or a rescue dog, you really want to set the conditions for you to form this bond effectively, right? You want them to feel like you are a person who is safe, who's trustworthy, that they don't have to worry about. And that means paying really close attention to like what they need and what they don't want. Do they want hugs? Do they want you to kiss them on the face? I mean, my dog, guacamole, if I try to kiss him on the face, he turns his head away from me very dramatically. Like, like he just doesn't like face kisses. Lots of my other dogs like want me all up in there. And that's great. You know, do they want to play? Do they want to kind of hide and just kind of settle back in? Like those first couple weeks, they will be a different kind of dog than they potentially will turn out to be because it's such a big adjustment. And I think that's a point where like, if you can show that you're going to respect what they need, it forms the foundation for that really trusting bond in your relationship going forward. I would echo everything that Jen said there. I think time and space are absolutely key. When we got Sadie, our previous dog was a real cuddler. And I told my, my kids, don't hug the new dog. Don't hug the new dog. Blanket rule. Got to give her space. Let her warm up to us. Like, don't crowd her. Don't hug her. She is the cuddliest dog I've ever seen. So they laugh about that now because now she initiates the hugs. In addition, I think it's super important, and this is just kind of a learning process as you go, to learn to read your dog's body language because dogs signal what they need and what they want in different ways. Sometimes they're quirky about it. And so you really have to just stay highly attuned to those messages and learn to read your dog's body language. 
These are great bits of advice. I definitely wish I had read this book before getting my first dog four years ago. I grew up with dogs, but it was different when I was the kid, you know, and like absolutely being the adult, getting the dog. And I also had the first dog we got, Yuka. She is a challenge. <laughs> like she is very stubborn, very intense. There were certain behaviors that I was like, whoa, I was not ready for this. I'd never seen a dog that had that much energy and was that feisty and sweet. Loved people, loved people, loved dogs, but just didn't nap, did not nap during the day. What puppy literally does not take a nap all day long? (laughs) Like she was out of control, but I adore her. And she's actually one of the most like sensitive, sweet dogs and so perceptive. If I'm unhappy or something's going on, she'll hop into my lap and like face me and put her paw on me and just try to maintain eye contact. It's it's really like... That's darling. Yeah, it's really amazing. So I've developed an appreciation, but man, the first few months with her were rough. (laughs) (laughs) Any of our listeners who pick up your book and are going to be new dog owners will be very appreciative of your advice. Tiny show and tell, Deboki, if I'm not wrong, you have something that is dog themed. So I feel like you should go first. I do have something that's dog themed and it's like very related to this episode overall. It just so happened this week that I was working on something for a different project and I had read this article and then when I realized we were recording this, I was like, this is perfect. This all ties together. And so basically this is for anyone who wants to like take all of this conversation about our relationships with dogs and then take it in the bleakest direction possible. Well, not the bleakest. The bleakest is a world without dogs. So maybe the second bleakest, which is a world without humans where we then wonder like what would happen to the dogs. So this is an article that was published actually a few years ago on Aeon called The Post-Human Dog and it's written by Jessica Pierce. And so basically what Pierce is working through in this article is that question of like what would happen to the dogs if we just all suddenly vanished from the earth? And I think we might like kind of jump to this idea that somehow dogs are just gonna like de-evolve back into wolves but that's not really like how evolution works. It's not like evolution's gonna like like look back and be like, hey, what did you used to be before humans? It's like Mm -hmm. really more like how are the conditions around dogs going to change and how is that going to impact who they are now and like how they're going to respond to that change going forward. And so what this article is really more about is thinking about like how the dogs are going to be affected by our absence, given the way that our presence is such a factor in their survival. Even dogs that aren't pets still rely on us. They use our food waste for survival and like there's just a lot of ways in which their lives are intertwined with ours. So this is a longer article. And so I don't want to like give away all of its arguments or anything. But I do think it's a super interesting read for anyone who likes thinking through these ideas and kind of just wants to see where that thought experiment goes. Yeah, I'm so curious. Is there like one example that you can tease for us? So this isn't necessarily a specific example of like what the dogs will become, but it was just something I didn't think about. But it's sort of related to that idea of becoming a wolf again. Basically what Pierce is saying is that like at an individual level, they're going to first go through feralization where like, because we're not here, a lot of the dogs that are not feral are going to become 
feral at some point. And so what's really interesting to think about then is like, how are they going to fit in ecologically? And also like, how is this going to affect their reproduction and like all of those strategies? Again, even though we don't know like exactly where they're going to end up, there's all of these small little details that we have such a hand in their lives. They're not going to be bred anymore. What does that look like for dogs? Like, it's just that is such an interesting thought experiment. You Mm -hmm. know, if I didn't exist, I don't think my dogs would last three days (laughs) they would just be like this stinks (laughs) we don't know how to do anything (laughs) yeah I always wonder like what my cat would do without me and I'm I'm not sure because like I always think he's just like terrified of everything but I also feel like you know I think he's scrappy I think he's got a little bit yeah of the survivor in him so you never know your dogs could surprise you yeah I don't know I think My dog, Zeke, is much scrappier. She's way, even though she's the most lovey thing, she is my protector. She's so small, but she's so intense when she thinks there's any sort of danger. And so I feel like she'd be far more aware of the surroundings. And Yuka's very, like, happy-go-lucky and, like, never concerned, really, about anything. And so I think that would actually work against her. So I don't know. <laughs> I'm just like imagining them trolling the post-human apocalypse. They're like partnered up. And it's just like Zeke being like, you can stop. <laughs> like you got to come back over here. Totally. In an apocalyptic situation, she would absolutely be in charge. Yeah. All right. So I'm coming to you today with a story about Sicilians, which are not people from Sicily. It's very confusing. And I believe this is the correct pronunciation. It's spelled C-A-E-C-I-L-I-A-N-S. So these are legless, worm-snake-looking amphibians. So when they're born, the babies, they'll actually use their hook-shaped teeth to scrape off their mom's skin and eat it. So these flakes are apparently very fatty and nutrient-rich. Why am I telling you this? Because We briefly talked about the microbiome in this episode, and there was a study that was published a few months back that showed that this skin feeding actually allows the mother Sicilians to pass on their microbiomes to their offspring, possibly really helping with the development of their offspring's immune systems. So the way that these scientists actually came to this conclusion, because you're like, wait, I'm sorry, like a, a legless worm snake amphibian's microbiome? Like how how do you even, what is that about? They actually analyzed 1.5 million sequences of microbial DNA from the skin and guts of six male adult Sicilians, nine female adult Sicilians, and 14 young that actually came from three of the females, as well as microbial DNA from the environment, right? Because that's really important. Like, are you just picking up stuff that's around them? Or is this actually something that's specific to their bodies? And so what they found, interestingly, was that not much of that bacteria that was actually found in the offspring matched what was recovered from leaves, water, soil that were in the environment. But in a bunch of the offspring, as much as 20% of their microbiome matched the mom's skin or gut microbiome. That doesn't sound like a ton, but it's actually a pretty significant overlap. And it's kind of wild to think that it probably is there from just them using their hook-shaped teeth to scrape their mom's skin off and eat it. I'm so glad humans don't do that. Like, that sounds 
traumatic. This is such a terrifying creature. Like we're recording this before Halloween and it feels very appropriate. If you want to look up something terrifying, I feel like one of those creatures (laughs) that is like very nightmare inducing. But this is also like fascinating and like weirdly heartwarming. (laughs) I know. It's the weirdest combination of like maternal love and hook-shaped teeth. (laughs) (laughs) It's the perfect combination. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Tidy Matters, a production of the American Chemical Society. This week's script was written by Sam, who is also our executive producer, and was edited by me and by Michael David. It was fact-checked by Michelle Boucher. The Tidy Matters theme and episode sound design are by Michael Simonelli and the Charts and Leisure team. Thanks so much to Stacey Colino and Jen Golbeck. If you've not rated and reviewed Tiny Matters, please do. We're trying to grow, and that really, really helps us. If you want another way to support the show and to look really cool drinking your morning cup of coffee or tea or juice, we have left a link to our Tiny Matters coffee mug. You can find me on social at Sam J Science. And you can find me at Okie Dokie Bokie. See you next time.